You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Welcome, Summit Church. We're glad to have you back with us today. I hope everyone had a good Memorial Day weekend. That marks the perhaps the beginning of summer for most of us. We, my wife and I had a very restful time. We were visiting my sisters. We got to spend some time with family, so I hope everyone... Actually, now that I look out, it looks like more and more people are pretty tan, so it looks like some more people got to enjoy the sun. And before I begin, um, I'd like to start us out with some prayer. So if you would just pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to be gathered here this morning. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would just use this text this morning uh, by your Spirit to impress upon our hearts the fact that, that you are in control and the fact that because you are in control, you show us not only who you are, that you are on the throne, but that we are to humble ourselves before you. And I pray that this text would use, you would use it to give us an account of what it means to be humble before you. Uh, Lord, we're relying on you and your spirit this morning to make it real to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So before we begin, um, I'd like to kind of recap, do a, a short recap on where we've been. We're in the fourth chapter of Daniel now, but if we kind of, you know, look back on what we've done, we've covered a lot. Um, this, these uh, chapters have been really heavy with verses. So verse one, we find out who Daniel is. He's a young man. He was a captive. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar captured uh, the Jews, brought him to Babylon, and we find out that he's about 15 to 17 years old. And Daniel decides that he wants to take a stand. And because of this stand, it will mark out his whole life. And from a young age, the, the choices that we make at a young age determine our character. And that's exactly what Daniel did. He determined to take a stand for God. And, and Daniel's faithfulness to God is what basically cultivated a character that God worked with throughout his whole life. And we'll see Daniel from a young man. We see him in chapter 4, uh, 20 years after uh, chapter 3, which was the fiery furnace. And we'll see Daniel as an old man in the lion's den. And his character uh, really started at a young age. In chapter 2, we see the fact that Nebuchadnezzar knows who this Daniel is, that he has a dream on his bed, and in the dream, basically, God gave to the king and to the Jews who would read the, this uh, testimony that this was going to be the prophetic timeline, that they were experiencing a time that they've never known before. Uh, in fact, if you notice, uh, throughout the Jews' history, God always laid out in prophecy what was going to happen to them. If you recall to Abraham, he gave um, Abraham the fact that his descendants would be for 430 years captive in Egypt. So they knew what to expect. And so God never left his people in the dark in regards to what's going to happen in the future. Uh, they had an expectation. They had no idea that they were going to be in captivity, although God told them through Moses, that they were going to rebel against his laws and they were going to go to captivity. But now they find themselves in captivity and once again God had to reveal to them, hey, 
you're in captivity, but you can expect a good end. I'm still in control. In chapter 3, we see the fiery furnace. We see a little bit more of the personality of the king. This king was quick to anger. He would fly off the handle, and oftentimes, we'll, we'll see through this uh, uh, chapter, that sometimes God raises up the basest of men, meaning the most depraved men, men that we would not particularly vote for. And we see that in the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had an experience with God, multiple experiences with God. And in chapter 4, we're going to see the conclusion of the king. Because after chapter 4, we will not see this king again. So, just to give us a little bit of the background, to lay some groundwork, this chapter is a very um, unique chapter in the Bible because it was written from the perspective of a pagan king in Aramaic, penned by Daniel. It's the only uh, chapter written by a pagan that found its way in the Bible, a testimony. The other um, unique thing about the book of Daniel and this chapter is the fact of a chiasm. So a chiasm is a literary structure. Um, it's basically, a chi is the Greek word, uh, Greek letter X. And so you have corresponding sections. Um, it's really easy to organize, um, as you see up there, where you see that chapter 2 corresponds to chapter 7. So you see in chapter 2, we were given the, um, the statue and that's the perspective of the Gentiles, that, hey, we're so noble and, you know, head of gold and, and bronze and, and silver. And then you see the perspective in chapter 7 from the Jews, beasts. So we're going to see it come back around to beasts, and that's going to be described in chapter 7. We see that chapter 3 uh, corresponds to chapter 6, where you see the trial of Daniel's friends. And in chapter 6, it's going to seem like we're back here again with Daniel. Now Daniel's experiencing his own trial in chapter 6, and then we have 4 and 5, which correspond to, together. That's the point of the chiasm. It's very interesting because we see that we have two options, and it's almost laid out in the whole Bible. God is either going to meet us in grace, or he's going to meet us in judgment. And, you know, we can work with God. What, how do you want to approach God? Do you want to ignore him? All that's left for you is in judgment. But if you'll humble yourself before him, he will extend grace to you. And on top of that, the interesting thing is chapter 4 is actually organized in a mini chiastic structure. It's in the form of um, the first section, which is Nebuchadnezzar's praise. It starts off with praise, and guess what? It ends with praise. So these two sections correspond one to another, and then the middle section all has to do with the dream, the interpretation of the dream, and the fulfillment. And that's going to be the middle part. And we're going to get to a point. So the, the chiastic structure in the X, X marks the spot. The center point is the point of the whole chiasm. So we're, I'm, I'm going to mention the point of the chiasm once we get to that. And that you can find at the, closer to the end. But without going any further, maybe I'd like to transition um, us to the text with a little story. Uh, how many of you have heard the story of the emperor's new clothes? Show of hands, okay. Oh man, I, I was hoping Les would know this story. Basically, the way it starts off is with a prideful king. Coincidence? N Nebuchadnezzar? 
This prideful king was all about fashion, clothes, showing off to his kingdom. The kingdom knows this. They expect it. And what happened was two swindlers wanted to take the opportunity to uh, come up to the king and say, hey, king, we can make you a garment that's above and beyond anything you have in your closet. And the king getting all excited, all right, great, this sounds awesome. He pays the men. And they tell the king, but the, the special thing about this garment is that it's made from a special fabric that if you're stupid, you can't see it. And so it's from a special cloth. And the king thought, awesome, this is great. I can wear this thing and I could tell who the fools in my kingdom are and who, the, who are foolish of my officials. And I could fire them and whatever. And so the men begin to start spinning the clothes and they're, they're pretending to, to spin something. Uh, weeks go by and the king tells the officials, hey, can you go check on the progress of this new garment? And they go and they, they look at one another and they're like, man, we don't see anything. Are we foolish? And they made a deal that, hey, we're just going to tell the king it looks great. We don't want to, you know, turn in ourselves and say we're fools. And so they come back to the king with reports, king, it looks awesome. This is the, like, you're going to be shocked and impressed. And this king is, oh, yeah, great, awesome. Finally, the guys are done, and they tell the king, king, isn't this the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? The patterns, the colors, and the king's looking at it like, uh-oh, I don't, I don't see anything. But he doesn't want to look like a fool in front of his officials that have told him that looks so good. Uh, you know, am I unqualified for the, this job? Um, and he says, yeah, that, that looks amazing. This is the best work ever. And they begin to undress him. And they say it's light as a, a spider's web. And they start to put it on him. They, they, they just pretend. And he gets in it. And he calls the kingdom. The kingdom's waiting for this reveal of his clothing. And as he stands out, there's a time of celebration. Everyone looks at one another and they're like, man, we don't want to say this king's not wearing anything. Are we foolish? And after the applause dies down, a little boy looks up and says, hey, mom, he's not wearing any clothes. And so that just goes to show that pride can blind us to reality. And that's exactly what we find in King Nebuchadnezzar. His pride had blinded him to the reality of who was really in control. And we're going we're gonna to see this here. So I'd like to start off um, with the intro that Nebuchadnezzar gives in verse 1. So we're going to go to the text. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. In verse 1, the king not only addresses the ancient world, but was immortalized in scripture for all time. So this really was a testimony given to the whole world, but not just to the ancient world but to our time today, he was immortalized in scripture. So it goes out and it will go out as a testimony to the world forever. It's, a, it's an amazing fact. Verse 2, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God had worked for me. And this speaks of an experience. The king speaks of events that are tangible and personal, not speculative. All believers have a personal experience. What events in your life has God brought you that changed the course of your life? And that's maybe something that we can meditate on. The fact that I know not everyone that's a believer has a bar to church conversion, but there was the reality that at one point our heart was dead to the word of God. Our eyes were closed 
And it's, it's interesting because I was talking to a neighbor a few days ago and she said at seven years old when she heard the message of the gospel, it's almost like the veil fell off her eyes. And that's exactly the experience of every believer. When they come in contact with this word and the reality of it, the spirit brings it to life and the veil, as it were, falls off our eyes and we begin to see spiritual truths that we could not see before that. Verse 3, How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. In this, we learn that the king declares that the kingdom does belong to God, generation to generation. Long after the king's dead, the king will still be on the throne, which is the Lord. And it's very interesting that we learn in chapter 2 that one kingdom would give way to another, but the, one, the Lord is the one who is truly ruling. Who better to tell us than the man who starts off the statue? Remember, this man killed many of God's people and others he took captive. It would seem like Nebuchadnezzar is in control, yet we find out that God is greater. Now the, the king begins to tell his story. After that mini introduction, first three verses, he begins to tell a story of another dream. This king was definitely a dreamer. Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. Verse 4. Um, read with me to 6. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And just going a little bit further in 7, Then the magicians, the astrologers, and the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. So that was a fail. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, is troubled by another dream he had in a similar fashion. He first tries the occult, the worldly wisdom for answers. Uh, he reveals the dream, and his dream actually seems a lot easier to interpret than the first dream, but they were bankrupt. At one point, the dream seems to even interpret itself, so why could these men not give the king an answer? Perhaps they were fearful of what would happen to them if they gave the king bad news. And it's not a far stretch, because remember what happened in the second chapter um, or I'm sorry, the third chapter where he flew off the handles and was ready to throw you know, three guys into a fiery furnace. They didn't want to touch that. In the second chapter, he was ready to kill all the magicians just because they couldn't tell him the dream or the interpretation. So it's not far from the truth that this king was kind of nuts. And it seems like a prerequisite in our time that world leaders are nuts. So, verse 7 I'm sorry, verse 8 down, it turns to Daniel. So the occult fails, the worldly wisdom fails. Now he hears or he seeks a word from God, Daniel's turn. Verse 8, but at last Daniel came before me, his name Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Now the king turns to Daniel and acknowledges that Daniel has the spirit of the holy gods. The interesting point here is that um, the king 
acknowledges Daniel's God as part of the pantheon of, of gods. He sees him as perhaps the highest god of all the other gods of Babylon. But nevertheless, he does not fully acknowledge God on who he is, and he does not fully comprehend or understand that this God is really the one in control. Verse 10 to 15. This is the description of the tree. And it gets a little repetitive. We're going we're gonna to hear this a couple of times, so this is going to be pretty much drilled into your memory But by the end of this. Verse 10. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great, and the tree became, and the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruits. Let, it, let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots of the earth. Bound it with a band of iron and bronze. In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. That's my best uh, angelic voice, by the way. So... What have we seen? Kind of put it in your own words. This is the greatest tree on planet Earth. It was far-reaching and provided shelter for all the beasts. Um, it, it provided protection in the shelter of its uh, shade. It provided food. Uh, the leafy greenness speaks of prosperity. But at the same time, we see another symbol. Hold on. Uh, where we have a watcher or angel declared a judgment on this tree to cut it down. The tree would no longer offer protection, shelter, and food. It would be left alone. But we see some hope. So this is the grace in the judgment for Nebuchadnezzar. The stump was left and its roots are still in the earth. It's not the end of the story for the tree. We see another symbol. The stump would have a band of iron and brass binding it. It would refer to the divine judgment of God. Brass is often a symbol of judgment in the scripture, um, and it's reoccurring throughout, but we, if you read the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, you'll see that his feet are as burnished bronze, where he was stomping out in judgment uh, the wicked now we see in verse 15, the tree is referred to as him. So there is a little bit of a change at the end of verse 15, him. The tree has a personal pronoun, him. The tree starts off as a mighty tree above the beasts of the earth. Now it is brought low as a stump, the same level as the beasts, even some beasts being perhaps better than the stump. Verse 16, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. So we're just doing some prerequisite interpretive work. And this is the, maybe the pre-interpretation pre before we get into it. The tree, who is the tree? Anybody? 
Nebuchadnezzar, thanks. Cut it down means he will no longer have authority. So his authority will be stripped from him, and he'll be locked with a band of brass in judgment. But there's an, another interesting picture, a brass of iron. And one person said that um, these, this iron brass could have been like a fence around him to protect him. So even though this king was judged, God still allowed his protection over him. And we'll kind of hold that thought because uh, we'll get back to how exactly he was protected. You have to think about the fact that if this man was really running around like a beast, he'd have to be protected from exposure, the elements. He'd have to be protected from other lions that were in the region. Um, Think about people that might want to kill him and get rid of him so they can set up their own kingdom. And then there's this other symbol. Seven times or seven periods pass over him. And times in um, Jewish literature often refer to years. And just keep that in mind because this kind of does give us a little key because later on in uh, Daniel 7, 8, 9, we're going to see this again, a time. It's going to come back to this. So just keep that in mind. But seven times pass over him. Verse 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. God has veto power. Daniel is troubled by... and I'm sorry. God did this to the head of gold, the strongest kingdom to show that he rules and he sets up kings, even the basest. And we can kind of put it to our time, who's kind of in control today? We look at across the world, we see Putin, who wants to suck up more land. We see Xi Jinping, who is mercilessly persecuting our brothers and sisters in China. And then we see Biden, who half the time doesn't even know who he is. Um, God sets up the governments, but once again, God has the veto power. He's the one truly in control. And this is kind of startling. It kind of reminds you of the fact of a contrast between Joseph and Nebuchadnezzar. If you think about it, Joseph was a young boy, one of the least honored in his family, according to his brothers, uh, thrown into a pit, but God took him from the pit and put him in a palace. And at the same time, because God could do that, he can also take a king, the head of gold, and take that king and strip him to take off all rule and put him in the field with a bunch of beasts. God is truly in control. Now that we've done some interpreting, let's see if we are correct. And Daniel gives us the interpretation. Remember, God does not leave us to our own devices and usually gives us the interpretation if we carefully read on, which many people... Christians uh, would go off-roading in speculative interpretation with, in regards to prophecy. All we have to do is just read the text because uh, the interpretation is usually given to us usually in that chapter, and that's exactly what we're going to see here. We're just going to check our work and see if what I said is true. So we reach the next section. Daniel interprets the second dream, verses 19 to 27, and I'll just read 19. At this point, we see we will see Daniel, I'm sorry, 18, but basically Daniel takes over and Daniel's going to be talking to the king for a little while. 
Verse 18, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. This is Daniel speaking. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. So Daniel is troubled after hearing that dream and addresses the king in concern. Now the question arises, is this concern genuine? I believe so because although Nebuchadnezzar had his moments of insanity, he had established order in the ancient world. That's where he established peace by force. And we know that it's better to have government in the world than anarchy. The government was instituted by God to punish wicked people. Think of law and order. Of course, there are also limits to government, and God sometimes intervened to dismantle a government that falls in its task to punish the wicked. And this is a very interesting thing. If you just study history, the rise and fall of empires, uh, usually the empires start off really good, and they kind of devolve. And by the end of the empire, it usually devolves into uh, uh, anarchy and moral decay. Uh, that's what we saw with the Romans and many other ancient uh, governments. Let's read on verse 20 to 22, the response of Daniel as he starts to interpret. The tree that you saw, which grew up and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. So tree, Nebuchadnezzar, looks like it checks out. Let's continue. Verse 23. Daniel continues to speak. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but, the, but leave its stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that the heaven rules." So we have the full interpretation of the dream. Once again, I think everything we said pretty much checks out. The tree is Nebuchadnezzar. The fact he's going to be cut off, he's going to be driven into the fields with the wild beasts, he's going to be eating grass. And here goes the answer to the question, do you think that Daniel's concern for the king was genuine? And we see another concern here. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Well, was Daniel's concern genuine? And this is another kind of proof that, yeah, I think it, I think it was. 
Daniel was providing counsel to the king without the king asking. The king didn't go to Daniel and say, what must I do? Daniel just gives out what he must do, the directions. Daniel was taking initiative out of concern for the king. Now, this kind of brings another person in mind, Jonah. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, and Jonah runs the other way. He actually goes to Joppa, which is Spain. So, totally far out. And Jonah, when he arrives, reluctantly, I mean, God had to drag him through a fish to get to uh, that place, but he reluctantly goes there and he gives the bare minimum. He says, guess what, guys? 40 days, you're all toast. That's all he gives. He doesn't give any counsel to repent. And so that's the complete opposite of Daniel. Daniel has the heart for the Gentile ruler. Now, a question comes to mind. Are we concerned about the lost or are we wishing for their destruction? We can either be like Jonah or we can be like Daniel. And the funny thing about Jonah, or maybe the sad thing, was that after he gave the message to the king, he actually set up shop to watch the fireworks. Like, oh boy, I can't wait till they, they get theirs. And so Daniel is the complete opposite. Um, and we also, likewise, as believers, have a message of judgment to the world to give. Um, we know that this world was judged once with the flood. We know that there are still um, leftover proofs that this world was judged by water, and the world does not want to acknowledge that. But we have that judgment, but also with the judgment comes the grace. We also have the solution as well, and I'll touch on that at the very end. Now, what is the perspective of God? Is God like Daniel or like Jonah? What do you think? Well, I'll just read Ezekiel 18, 23, and this is the Lord speaking. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his wicked ways and live? So think about that. The Lord does have compassion, and in fact, he was so filled with compassion that he sent his only son. And we'll kind of hold that in mind because we'll, we'll get back to that as well. So Daniel gives the advice to the king, and now some time elapses. Actually, a whole year goes by. So did the king take it to heart? Well, let's read on, 28 to 30. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? So the king, flourishing in his palace and admiring what he had thought he accomplished through his hard work or strength and wisdom and ingenuity. But what does the Bible say about this king and how he acquired his kingdom? So the question is, is this real? Did he really acquire it by his own power? Well, this is what Jeremiah, God says through Jeremiah in uh, Jeremiah 27, 6. And now, have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him? The king needed a perspective change, and God was gracious enough to give it to him. So where Nebuchadnezzar was saying, I, I, my, concerned with me and mine, God was saying, no, it was really me. I gave you the kingdom. I raised him up. I put you in charge. He did it for a purpose. And the king did not know that until he had to go through his ordeal. So what was the king doing? 
on top of his roof, looking down. Pride. Many things could be say, said about this sin. It was the original sin that led to the downfall of Satan. It elevates one above their position, and one commentator puts it as spiritual amnesia. We forget God when we're proud, and the fact that he raises us up, and if he wishes, he can put us down. As a creature, we are dependent on God for every breath we take, and if he were to remove his hand, we would be helpless. Proverbs 6.16, this is uh, what one commentator said was God's hate parade. You know, seven things God hates, if that sounds familiar. Um, just a quick look, and we're going to look at the first one. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Verse 17, a proud look. And it lists more sins, but the first one that God lists is a proud look. What is a proud look? Well, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. Do you ever look down on people? Do you ever say, well, I'm better looking than that person? Oh, I have more education. I'm smarter. I'm wiser. I'm stronger. That's exactly what the king was doing. He was looking down and saying, I'm the best. And if that's something that we might struggle with, I pray that the Holy Spirit kind of brings that to our memory and attention throughout the week. Maybe that's something that we can repent, and may God give us the grace to repent from that. So the king was looking with an arrogant look, but Nebuchadnezzar was given grace. But we read of another ruler. So this is this idea of you're either going to get grace from God or you're going to get judgment. And there was another ruler, King Herod, in Acts 12. He was swelling with pride. And God acted instantly. And aren't you glad that God has mercy for us and has not acted instantly when we fall into sin? But this is said about King Herod. And the people gave a shout saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and he gave up the ghost. So that was it for King Herod. What a way to go. But that's what pride can do to us. And apart from God's grace, he could come with the same judgment. Yet he's long-suffering with us. Now, I kind of have to make an observation, um, kind of bringing it to our time. What about our society? We're the most humble people in the world, right? Good thing. Well, we find ourselves in June, and it's interesting that June is Pride Month, if you haven't heard where the world takes the sin of homosexuality and parades it and actually takes that sin and uses the rainbow as the symbol for it, which is very interesting. The fact that the rainbow was God's promise to never flood the earth again. And what people have done is they say they're going to take this sin, they're going to use the rainbow flag as a symbol to wave it in God's face for a whole month saying, aha, you can't judge us. And it's a sad state of affairs where we find ourselves. This um, Pride Month started in about 1999 to 2000. So we've had 22, around 22 years of Pride. And it took one year of Pride for uh, Nebuchadnezzar to be judged. How long will God suffer Pride in the world? And that's just one sin. And you can pile it on and on and on. So... Once again, we're not to hate these people, but we are to go out in love and share the truth 
in love with them that there is a way to escape. So now that I've kind of gave some ideas about pride, I want to kind of give the solution. How can we avoid making the same mistakes Nebuchadnezzar made? Well, I think one of the greatest ways is as an example, and who better to model this for us than our Lord Jesus Christ? We read in Philippians 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem the other better than himself. Wow. So you're telling me I have to esteem everyone better than myself? Yeah, that's exactly what it's saying. And in fact, if you do that, you will automatically become humble. Let's continue. And this is how Jesus humbled himself and he modeled it for us. If you, if you kind of compare two kings, right? You have the head of gold, King Nebuchadnezzar, the earthly king that was above all the other kings. And then he could not humble himself. He was filled with pride. But Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, humbled himself and he became a servant. And let's read on in the same passage, Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of things in heaven and things in earth and the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what a, what a model, what a model for us. If we, I mean, compared to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, we are nothing. How much more should we be able to fulfill this? And just be humble. Um, may we kind of dwell on this throughout the week. It seems as if the king ignored Daniel's advice. That's what we saw here, up to 30. Or actually, we're going to get to that in, in uh, verse 31. Keeping with the fact that pride seems to make us forget God and our ego is quick to fill the vacuum, God was gracious and put up with the king's pride for a whole year. And after this warning, following a time of grace, that's usually the pattern. There's a warning, there's grace. Then there's swift judgment. It comes in without warning. And that's what we see here. Let's read verse 31 to 33. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, angelic voice, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from the men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So, as the king Nebuchadnezzar was boasting, judgment fell. Just as he was about to say, I'm the best, God said, no, you're not. And Nebuchadnezzar was about to learn a powerful lesson on who's really in control. And this is a humiliating lesson to learn for seven years. Seven uh, refers, uh, it's actually God's fingerprint. That's how you know it comes from God. It's the number in the Bible, uh, seven means completion, or what we would consider 100%. Uh, 
Uh, and then you would ask yourself, and, and I kind of went over this earlier, but um, seven times refers to seven years in uh, Jewish literature. But maybe someone could object and say, well, could it be for seven days or seven months or weeks? Well, to answer that question, we go to the text for more detail. We are given a description of the king's physical appearance. And we find out that his hair growth uh, is to be the size of eagle's feathers and nails like bird's talons. Eagle's feathers are 16 to 22 inches long. Um, It would take longer than seven months for a man to grow their hair to this length. For seven years, the king ran around like an animal. And remember, Daniel was telling the king, hey, we, you, you should really do better with the poor. You should really, you know, kind of feed them. And it's interesting that the king had all he needed in his palace, the best of the best, the best wine, the best food, and God, to humble him, would deny him even human food. He would be given animal food. So I don't know how much more humbled you can be. We know God supernaturally protected him. Remember the band of iron? Some commentators have stated that it's like a fence around him for protection. He would have to be protected from, like I said, exposure, disease, malnourishment, and other wild beasts. And then you ask yourself, how? How did God do this? Well, we read a a really interesting uh, passage in the New Testament where God could have sent a demon to possess the king. We read in the scripture that there was a demon-possessed man naked and among the tombs. Or God could have supernaturally changed his mind, just like that. Uh, Psychiatry has listed uh, this mental disorder as lycanthropy. That is, um, where one literally acts like an animal. And I'm not talking about, you know, your children in Sunday school. Um, We see that this would have been actually a comfort to Israel. Because showing them that God was still in control even enough to humble the king that seemed invincible to them. Um, Daniel could have been the one one of the overseers in Babylon uh, during the the time of the king's madness. So it'd be really interesting as a Jew in that day to look up and to see like one of your fellow Jews in kind of leadership and this Gentile king being running around like an animal and kind of like, look at our king. Um, So this could have definitely brought some comfort to the people of Israel. So let's read on. We know that it it was fulfilled. We just read the passage of the fulfillment. And now comes verse 34. This is the point of the chiasm that I was talking about. And at the end, verse 34, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Amen. So that's the point of the chiasm. This is where I lifted up my eyes and I acknowledged God. He has come to the end of himself. And when you come to the end of yourself, you acknowledge God. Because you know it's not by your strength or power or anything that you have in you, but it is God who is keeping you. So, at the end of the madness, he acknowledged God from his animal-like state. Before this ordeal, the king was prideful, yet now his mind could do what all of mankind was made to do with their mind. God has given us a mind. We're different from the animals. 
And with our mind, we are to do two things. It's in a catechism, to, and I think it's part of our, our um, values back there, too. Thank you. To enjoy God and glorify him forever. So now Nebuchadnezzar could do what he was made to do. Verse 35, and we're, we're coming to a close now, and this is the end. God's sovereignty, the king's restored, and the king's testimony. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are repudiated as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? So this really drives home, and the king is testifying of God's sovereignty. God is in control God is the one who really rules. We read that by his power he sustains all things. It's an incredible thing to really ponder. Um, If you look at the macro scale, the big picture, he's in control of kings and kingdoms. He controls the weather, uh, Job tells us that. Uh, In the micro, he even controls that, even the most minute little things. It says that he knows every hair that's on your head, uh, he knows every time, Jesus says that he knows every time a, a sparrow falls to the ground, if you re- remember that passage, falls to the ground actually means hops. Every time a little sparrow hops on the ground and you multiply that by every sparrow in the world, God knows. So when we're praying, um, we ought to pray with faith because if he knows even the littlest details, he, can, he, can, he hears your prayers. They're important to him. He searches the secret things of the heart. His wisdom and power is awe-inspiring. We can easily be afraid of the headlines, right? War, famine, disease, COVID, monkeypox, max shootings, Biden as president. We as believers can rest knowing that God is still on the throne and is over the affairs of men. Next time you think you're in control, don't forget to look up and thank God of heaven that is really in control. Verse 36. We're getting to the restoration. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. The king was preserved through the ordeal, and after he acknowledged God, he's actually more honored, wise, and established. Even the counselors and lords looked to the king for counsel. And that, that could be true to us when, um, when we kind of rub shoulders with our unbelieving neighbors and friends and coworkers, when they're going through hard times in their life, a divorce, uh, a season of um, losing their job or something wrong with their children, when they see a testimony, something different about us, they will turn to us for answers. And I, I pray that be true for all of us. Verse 37, so we're kind of really winding down here. This is the end testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. The greatest king, the head of gold, gives his testimony. The Lord should be honored and praised. His works are true, and he has the power to humble the proud. And likewise, like we talked about with Joseph, he has the power to raise up those that are humble. That's exactly what he does. Now that we've kind of reached the end, I kind of want to make a few final statements as we wind down. 
about the book of Daniel. It's a really important book uh, in the Old Testament. It's actually called uh, the book, uh, the Old Testament book of Re- Revelation. It's split into six chapters on the narrative side, which we've been covering. So we still have two more chapters to go. We have chapters five and chapter six for the narrative. And then we have six prophetic chapters on the other side, seven through 12. And we're going to be heading to the prophetic, which some of it was fulfilled uh, during Daniel's lifetime, some were fulfilled after his lifetime, and then there's still more to be fulfilled even ahead of our time as well. And then the question arises, how can we trust the book of Daniel? How can we trust these prophecies? Well, the interesting thing is that um, God gives something called a near-term prophecy. So that's exactly what happened with the king. So the idea is that if God is 100% accurate with the near-term prophecy, it literally came true in his lifetime, uh, God predicted it, it happens, we can trust that the far future events that God predicts will come true. Because he's not only in control of all the things I've listed already, but he also is in control of time. Uh, So he knows the end from the beginning. We can trust him. So some of the final thoughts. We look around society and it seems like it has devolved into an animal-like state. Um, What do I mean by this? Well, think about it. Marriage, children, even newborns are no longer viewed as sacred. And, you know, it just pains my heart to talk about the Texas school shooting uh, where, you know, we live in a country where we can't even send our kids to school and uh, 20 people were violently murdered. Um, That's the type of animal-like state of not caring, not even caring for human life and not just human life but children, really. The popular religion, and I think this has a lot to do with where we're at as well, um, of the world is evolution, which would have you believe that you came from the goo to the zoo to me and you. Uh, Upward evolving, yet in reality the society is full of decay. A life apart from God, ruling oneself, like autonomy, leads humans to become lower than animals. God created us a little lower than the angels, yet man chooses to crawl around like animals. How can a man fulfill what God has created us for? The Bible tells us that all humans are born spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, like Nebuchadnezzar acting like an animal. Looking downward to fulfill its lust for food, money, sex, comfort. When a man has come to the end of himself, he looks upward towards heaven and for a word from God. And from that word of God, the understanding returns to humans. Remember what we talked about, the veil falling from our eyes? When we come into contact with this book, the Spirit opens our heart to this truth and the veil falls from our eyes. And our understanding returns to us. The gospel has the power to turn an animal into a man, to uh, death into life, stone into flesh. The law brings conviction of sin, a mirror that we hold up to ourselves, showing us that we are not good, but God is holy. And that's the whole problem of man. And if I were to just do the test, I'll, I'll just do two tests. How many of us have told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay, everyone's hand should have shot up. Whoever doesn't, that's your first lie. Um, 
Second thing, if, if any of us have ever stolen anything, even if it's small, irrespective of its value, that should shoot up. We, we took something without asking. We've broken two laws. God is so holy that he cannot stand sin at all. So he made a way for us. We have fallen short of his standard, and all that awaits us is hell. But God, so gracious and good, while we were eating the pig food, dead in sins and trespasses, made a way for us to be reconciled. Jesus Christ, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, as we read earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, the second, he took on flesh, and he died for our sins. To put it bluntly, you and I broke God's law, which we went over. We, we only looked at two. Jesus paid the fine in his, in his life's blood. If you find yourself running through life as an animal, I urge you to repent, to change your mind, and to put your faith in Jesus today. And I'll leave you with Romans 10, 9 through 10. This is the uh, gospel call. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised them from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So simple as faith in Jesus alone to make us right with the Father. I'm pleading with you this morning to turn from sin and to turn to God, turn to the only God that has the power to save. So let us pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.